I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. We welcome back to the podcast my colleague, Dr. Elliot Cohen, who is the Arlie Burke Chair at CSIS, the former dean at Johns Hopkins School of International Studies. And Elliot is a former senior U.S. official and also, I should say, a columnist for The Atlantic magazine. And if you're not reading Elliot's columns every week, you're really missing what's going on in Ukraine. So please check in on that. CSIS has tweeted the column out, so you'll see it there. Elliot, thanks for joining us again. I wanted to ask you right off the bat, you believe that for those of us who were born after World War II, that this is the most consequential war of our lifetime. Can you explain why? Sure. And uh, thanks for that kind introduction. Europe still matters. And a very large war in the heart of Europe matters. But this goes well beyond that. First, this is very much about whether uh, revanchist Russia can in effect, rebuild the Russian empire. And that's that's pretty clearly what Putin's intention is. I mean, he's made very clear that he doesn't think Ukraine and Belarus are real countries. And he does believe that anywhere people speak Russian, that they belong in that part of the empire. That is a major geopolitical project. And of course, it has implications as well for our standoff in the Indo-Pacific with China. Secondly, you know, the moral issues here are huge. I mean, this is a absolutely unwarranted war of aggression. But beyond that, it's involved really the deliberate massacre of civilians. It may involve before very long the gassing of civilians. But what's going on is bad enough. It involves the use of rape as a tool of war. Now, we've seen those things in other places. And people may say, well, it's a little bit hypocritical to get exercised about it. But but the, the scale and the blatant quality of it, I think, is really enormous. A very senior Australian official who's a good friend of mine said, you know, my country has faced an existential threat only once. That was in 1942. And that was because the Asian security order broke down. And the Asian security order broke down because the European security order broke down. And I thought that was extremely insightful. And I think he's right. So the stakes here really are enormous. And you believe that the United States and NATO and the West need to take decisive action immediately, correct? Yeah. So I think, look, I, we're, we're doing a lot of the right things. You know, we've been shipping lots of anti-tank missiles and portable surface-to-air missiles. There have been supplies of ammunition and so forth. For this next phase of the war, what the Ukrainians really need are larger platforms. They need multiple launch rocket systems. They need heavy artillery. Because what the Russians are going to do is churn out an enormous amount of firepower in an effort to take the southern and eastern parts of the country after they were beaten, and they really were beaten in the north. Now, it's not just a question of holding the line. You know, my view is that the Russian army right now is actually pretty fragile. They've clearly suffered enormous losses, the kind of losses that military organizations usually take months to recover from. I personally believe that if they are really soundly defeated in particularly in the eastern part of Ukraine and, and the southern parts, that army may very well collapse and with enormous repercussions, of course, for Russian politics. So either way, the stakes are very large. If the Ukrainians are devastated and basically Russia is able to you know, rip off a large chunk of Ukraine and really impoverish that country permanently, that's a catastrophe. 
if it goes the other way, it can be an enormous gain for the for the West, but more importantly, it's a it's a rescue of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian nation and the Ukrainian state. This is squarely in our national interest. We really have a lot at stake here riding on this. Oh, our our national interest is very deeply engaged, both in terms of our interests, but also in terms of our values. And as you've heard me say before, the the essence of American foreign policy, it is that it engages both our interests and our values together. Elliot, let me ask you this. It seems like the Russian game plan now is to back up, not fight kinetically, but to launch missiles from far away and destroy cities the way they did in Grozny. What do you think about that? And is that indeed what seems like their strategy? And can it work? The Russians have always been a very high firepower army. You know, they've always given pride of place to artillery. But I think part of the reason why they're doing this now is, you know, a lot has been revealed about the Russian military. And I I have to say that I think one of the things we'll want to sort out after this, and that I hope we'll do this together at CSIS with our colleagues here, is why were so many of the military estimates of the Russian Russian capability off? And I think it was because people were counting pieces of equipment. They were, you know, fascinated by high technology and by Russian doctrine. And what they didn't see were the profound weaknesses of the Russian military. It's terrible discipline. It's terrible corruption. It's lack of a cadre of non-commissioned officers. One can go on and on. So in some ways, all they can do is deliver an enormous amount of firepower and essentially brutalize civilians and just try to devastate people with fire and possibly with chemical weapons. It's not clear to me that they can even sustain that if there are robust Ukrainian counterattacks because their logistics are also terrible. And there have been some very interesting commentaries out there about that. They really struggle to keep their troops supplied and fed and, you know, with adequate fuel. And one of the one of the drawbacks of their preferred operational approach of lots and lots of firepower is that means moving lots of heavy stuff around. You know, an artillery shell can weigh a hundred pounds. And so it's it is a non-trivial proposition. And the Ukrainians understand that. And thus far they've been fairly effective at waging a kind of logistical strategy of attacking supply lines. There was just a report today of blowing up a railroad bridge leading into the country and and so on. Can it work? Yeah, I think if, you know, the Ukrainians can't fight back. If they can fight back, I think it will at terrible cost, it will be defeated. Elliot, one thing that, you know, we keep coming back to as Americans is that we have this fear that Russia would use nuclear weapons. Is that just overblown? It's it's not entirely overblown because, you know, the Russians do think differently about nuclear weapons than they do. But I think there are two points, a narrow one and a broader one. The narrow point is there are actually no really good military targets for tactical nuclear weapons. The other, though, is, I mean, ultimately, Putin is not suicidal and the people around him are most definitely not suicidal. And anything that would lead to a nuclear exchange, they know, you know, puts not just their hold on power at risk, it puts the entire existence of Russia at risk, and it puts them personally at risk of losing their lives, and they don't want to do that. I think at the end of the day, nuclear deterrence works pretty well. The main thing it deters is the use of nuclear weapons. So I understand why people are cautious about it. But, you know, one point I would remind people of, there were thousands of Soviet advisors in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, helping 
the Vietnamese with their air defense system. Russians don't seem to have worried that that would cause a nuclear war. There were Russian pilots that flew against us in Korea. That didn't cause a nuclear war. It was essentially an extension of Russian special operations forces, the uh, Wagner Group, that had attacked an American outpost in Syria a number of years back, it got annihilated for their pains by AC-130 gunships and attack helicopters. That didn't end up engaging us in the use of nuclear weapons. You know, it, it's very clear the United States is not trying to overthrow Putin by invading Russia. You know, we have no intention of doing that. We have every intention of helping Ukraine defend itself. And finally, if you if you let, you know, Russian kind of trash talking about nuclear weapons deter you in this case, well, then what are the cases where you wouldn't let it deter you. I mean, it's th th this is really a slippery slope. I if they learn that they as they can get their way with you, or or at least prevent you from doing anything they don't like, by saying we'll go nuclear, then you're really headed on the road to perdition. Elliot, you've said that in most intense conflicts of this kind, armies engage in a kind of competitive collapse. Victory goes to the side that can hold out longer. Is is that really the case here? I think so. I mean, I think it's true, actually, of most really intense conflicts. I mean, the clearest example of that, you know, would be at the end of World War I, when basically the French army was collapsing and the German army was collapsing, the Austrian army. And the only people who weren't collapsing really were the British, although they, they had their challenges as well. I mean, what you have here is the Ukrainians clearly have much better combat motivation much more determination. They're, and they're, you know, they're fighting for their families. They're fighting for their homes. But, you know, at the moment, the firepower advantage goes to the Russians. And I think, you know, it's the nature, I think, of this kind of dynamic that you won't really know when you've crossed a tipping point until it actually happens. Although I have to say, you know, you've seen some indications on the Russian side. When soldiers begin shooting their officers, or in one case, I think, trying to run them over with a tank. When you have to have blocking units behind your army to shoot people who are trying to run away, when people abandon lots of equipment, it's an indication that your side is really pretty frayed. And that seems to be the story with at least a large chunk of the Russian military. Do you think Putin and his inner circle of advisors have a clear picture of what's going on on the ground? No, I, I, I don't think Russian senior leadership has a clear picture you know, it's striking to me. I haven't seen any pictures of any of the senior people visiting the front lines. That's, by the way, there's a contrast there with Ukrainian leadership. It's actually a contrast with any good wartime civilian leadership. But, you know, the main thing is the Russian, the Russian state system, to some extent, Russian society is based on pervasive lying. And in fact, the Russian information warfare strategy in dealing with us is also based on getting people not to believe that the, that truth exists. You know, in the old days when you could see RT here in the United States, you could see what they're purveying is cynicism. It's not they were trying to give you their version and persuade you of it. They just wanted you not to believe anything. Well, the problem is that, you know, that ends up working on yourself. So you don't know what truth is either. And the very concept of truth stops meaning things. And so I think that's where they, they found themselves completely shocked. And you know, the way Putin seems to be dealing with it right now is by purging the FSB with a successor organization to the KGB and blaming them for the predictable outcome of the system that he helped create. Elliot, it seems like the United States is doing a lot 
but I take it we're not doing enough. For instance, you know, we've given over 7,000 Javelin systems to the Ukrainians, which is about one third of the total U.S. inventory, according to our colleague Mark Hansian, who has a good commentary out about it today called, Will the United States Run Out of Javelins Before Russia Runs Out of Tanks? You can find that on the CSIS website. So are we doing enough to help the Ukrainians accomplish the objective here? Obviously, I'm not seeing the classified information, but my my feeling is no. I mean, we have been very hesitant to do some of the things that they want, for example, facilitating the transfer of MiG-29 aircraft from Poland through the U.S. to them. And some of that seems to be predicated on the father-knows-best principle. My view is at this point, they're the only country that has world-class expertise in fighting Russians, the Ukrainians, not us. And they've also shown that they can absorb a lot of high technology. What the Ukrainians have told us, and I've spoken with some senior Ukrainian officials, and this is confirmed by other things that are out there, is what they are screaming for are long-range surface-to-air missile systems, to some extent fixed-wing aircraft, so they can you know, keep the skies overhead clear, and then lots of heavy artillery and multiple launch rocket systems. And the reason why they need those is... The javelins are great in a close-in fight in a city or in a wooded area where you have cover and concealment for infantry. The, the terrain in the south and the east is wide open. And so what you need is much longer-range systems, essentially for counter-battery fire. In other words, to take out Russian artillery, to take out Russian rocket launchers. The U Ukrainians have been very, very good at using drones, including modified commercial drones to get the targeting information. And indeed, I've seen some reports which suggest that actually a lot of the Russian armor that's been destroyed has been destroyed not by javelins, but by indirect fire, by artillery fire, which they've delivered pretty, pretty effectively. And logistically, that's a lot more challenging. I also feel we haven't done enough we should have activated the Defense Production Act. You know, we should have factories going 24-7. There should be a sense, which you don't have, that there is some ferocious individual high up in the government who's going to crack heads together and just break through bureaucratic roadblocks. That is not the sense one gets. You have a sense that the bureaucracy is doing its thing. It's doing the right things, by and large, but it, it's not doing them fast enough. I think the, the phrase I used in this latest article was that in Washington, the metronome of war is ticking too slowly, and I do believe that. So it's just a matter, we're doing the right thing, we're just not doing it fast enough. Right. You know, as the saying goes, speed kills, or in this case, slowness kills. It's clear that Putin is going to roll the dice again, I think in part because he doesn't really know what's going on on the battlefield. And I think he probably understands that his military is under pressure, but what the way he's going to deal with that is by ordering them to effectively try to wrap this up with a major offensive. So... You know, he's going to throw everything that he's got into this. And that makes it really important that when we do that, we can really enable the Ukrainians to, you know, to crush them, which I believe is entirely doable. It's hard to understand what the holdup is, especially when there's such broad bipartisan support up on Capitol Hill for arming Ukraine. Do you think it's just out of caution? Do you think you mentioned that there isn't, you know, a red tape breaker? What's the first thing we should do and keep doing? Why is this happening? I do think some of it's innate caution. I think some of this is 
the Russians, you know, Putin is, as I, I think I've said to you before on one of these podcasts, he's a terrible strategist, but he's, a, you know, what he is is a trained KGB thug. And what those guys are used to doing is playing mind games. So they've got us arguing with ourselves. Is this escalatory? Are these offensive weapons? It's idiotic distinction. I mean, you know, threats of that they might go nuclear, stuff like that. So he's got us arguing with ourselves and kind of running in circles in our heads. So that's one part of it. I think the second thing, though, is it unfortunately gets to the nature of what kind of leadership do you have? And this is about personalities. You know, do you have people who have an instinct for the jugular? I mean, I hate to be so simple-minded about it, but do you have the kind of people you'd want to have by your side in a bar fight? Because that's what this is. This is not, and you know, it's a little bit odd saying this at Washington, D.C.'s greatest think tank. This is, this is, you know, the kind of characters you need are not the people who turn out an elegant policy paper or coin a new acronym or anything remotely like that. You have one of people who have some fire in the belly and, you know, a kind of steely spine and a desire to win and act that way and, and act that way in public too. I mean, I, you know, what you don't see is um, senior leaders, you know, the secretary of defense, for example, really being out there in public and saying, this is what this is all about. And this is why we're going to make sure the Ukrainians win. I, I was really dismayed to see, you know, we, we, we ship the Ukrainians out to Biloxi, Mississippi. Instead, of, instead of going there to train them, we're bringing them here to Mississippi. Yeah, we're bringing them to Mississippi to train them on how to use these very effective switchblade kamikaze drones. And, you know, and instead of being there to kind of put his arm around their shoulders and slap them on the back, he congratulates them by Zoom. This is Secretary Austin. Yeah, which is pretty tepid, if you ask me. But more importantly, we shouldn't be training them in Biloxi. We should, I'd prefer we were training them in Ukraine. Okay, if you're not willing to do that, train them in Poland. That's really vivid that, you know, we're bringing them here to train them, but we're we're nervous to go there because it represents an, some kind of an escalation? I don't know. I mean, th look, there is a symbolic side to this, which is very important. I mean, and one shouldn't dismiss it. So it's appalling that we don't have our embassy back in Kiev. It's appalling to me that we haven't had a senior American official go to Kiev. Boris Johnson can do it. The British Prime Minister, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president of the European Commission, she's able to do it. And that symbolic part is tremendously important. There's also a su substantive point. If you want to really build your relationship with President Zelensky and to some extent try to shape what they're doing, you want a fully staffed embassy there with an ambassador who is developing some kind of rapport with Zelensky and his team. And we don't have that. And it's, I hate to say it, it's, I think it's part of a general slowness in the administration. It's the reason why there are all these ambassadorial positions for which we don't, it's not only that we don't have people who've been confirmed, we don't have people even nominated. It's just too slow. So short of President Biden going to visit Kiev, we could easily send Tony Blinken or Vice President Harris. I mean, I understand why the Secret Austin. Service would have an aneurysm if the president wanted to go to Kiev, but this is, sounds terrible. But quite senior officials are frankly more dispensable than the president of the United States. And they can accept a higher level of risk and go places where you might not want, you know, the, the president going. And we're just not, we're just not seeing that.
and it's it's a risk that you have to be you have to be willing to take if you're going to be serious. So is the game amount to just a waiting game for the Ukrainians? Like how how much more can the United States and our allies do? Or is this really a matter of they need to even just dig even deeper than they've already dug? I think they have the potential to win in some meaningful sense of the word. And that's because I think the Russian military is much more fragile than people have been willing to acknowledge. You know, you, you have a community of Russian military analysts who don't want to admit that this baby that they've been studying for years and years and years is actually terrible and, and incompetent. The Russian military is not that large. You know, the ground force is about 300,000. They committed the best part of that to this war. The estimates are about 75% of their ground combat strength. It's gotten badly chewed up. They don't have a real reserve system. So it's, they don't have something like the National Guard or the Israeli reserve system where people are training part-time every year. It's riddled with corruption. And that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of these units are under strength to begin with. They don't actually have inexhaustible reserves of, you know, extra tanks and so on. These, you know, a lot of that stuff is really old, but more importantly, we have trouble taking stuff out of storage and making it operable. And our maintenance standards are way, way beyond theirs. So it's, you know, a, a friend of mine, Phil O'Brien at uh, St. Andrews University, compared the, the basic Russian military formation, the battalion tactical groups, to a, a, a boxer with a strong jab, but a glass jaw. And I think that's exactly what you got. So what would winning really look like for Ukraine? And what do we need to do like immediately to help them do that? So I think winning would look like being able to get back to the line of control as of February 23rd. I mean, it's conceivable they could even go further than that in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas, but let's just say that. I think the most important thing is to immediately begin working at scale, getting them these long-range artillery pieces that they really need and surface-to-air missiles and to be willing to consider things which we haven't been willing to consider. So one thing that I mentioned in, in the piece is, okay, I understand why we don't want to send U.S. troops into Ukraine, although my view is it's a sovereign country and if they want American troops there. I don't see why they shouldn't be there. But we have other models. So before Pearl Harbor, the United States was shipping our latest fighter plane, the P-40, to China. And there was an outfit called the American Volunteer Group, which is much more famous as the Flying Tigers, led by Claire Chenault. And I mean, they got into combat right after Pearl Harbor. But the basic point is the U.S. government was paying for that. And, you know, you had – these were all volunteers. They were making about triple what they would have made in the U.S. Army Air Corps. And they were quite willing to go for a bunch of reasons. We can do things like that. You know, the Ukrainians already have this foreign legion. I think they've kind of figured out how to weed out the people who are not particularly useful. But I, I am sure that if – you know, it was kind of made clear that we're going to be hiring a bunch of people at good salaries to go operate rocket launch systems or heavy artillery or F-16 airplanes. You'd have loads and loads of volunteers. Elliot, fascinating to talk to you about this as always. 
Thanks so much for coming back on Truth of the Matter. Always good to be with you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 